Welcome, everyone. This is Mia Ferraletto, publisher of New Observations Magazine. Today, I'm delighted to share our interview with New York sculptor uh, Leah Poehler, who has made and exhibited her work internationally um, throughout Europe, China, and the U.S., and she lives in New York City, uh, which is, in my opinion, the art capital of the world. Leah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Mia. It's a pleasure to be with you. So first, um, please give us a, a, some background about how you came to make sculpture and your life as an artist. Well, life is full of surprises. I don't think I started that way, but I certainly am thrilled looking back that this is the path that I chose. Um, I had a juncture in my life at the age of 30 when I left for Europe with my three children at the time of my divorce and decided to stay a little longer in order to explore the possibilities at the School of Beaux-Arts of Paris. Um, It's a very famous institution, and it does depend on uh, teachers of enormous quality who are professional artists, and it gives a very academic background. So by um, a a stroke of good luck, I met someone who was at the Beaux-Arts, and they said, well, come on, you can come in. So I showed up and made my way into the painting studio. I failed at it miserably. Uh, My professor one day said, "Uh, did they teach you how to hold a brush in America? So (laughs) in great embarrassment, I thought perhaps I would do better in sculpture. When I got into the sculpture studio, um, it was daunting. Nobody would give me the time of day. I had no clue what I was supposed to do. And the first time that I had a confrontation with a professor, he excoriated me and asked me if I didn't have something better to do with my life. And then he railed into a description of what I should be doing. Two weeks later, he came back. The entire classroom was deadly silent as he entered the room, made a beeline for me and said, oh, well, you listen, you can stay. (laughs) So that was the beginning of my activities in sculpture. Um, This was a very, I think, a very important relationship that stood me well. Um, My professor helped me to determine that I was much more equipped to be a sculptor and deal with reality than to be a painter and deal with um, imagination that was um, taking three dimensions and turning it into two and playing with color. He felt that I was profoundly grounded in the real. And so that was the beginning of my career. After 20 years in France, I returned to the United States, came to New York, and combined my activities of being an artist with being an activist in the arts, even to the point of opening a gallery in Soho. I lucked into a space which I later found out was the original uh, performance space of Holly Solomon, the the founder of the performance art movement. 
approximately 10, 12 years ago, I left Soho and moved up to Harlem, again, in quest of a different community where there was a lot more creativity going on around me. Soho had become very commercial at that point. Um, I also had a chance opportunity to get to China. And in China, I established a relationship with a foundry, the world's largest art foundry. When I say large, it's they have over 750 craftsmen who work with the artists. It's incredible. It's an absolute. Uh, it's a, it's like for me, it's the Disneyland for art um, for adults. So I've been really fortunate because they've given me a chance to express myself. They're capable of interpreting in bronze my my favorite material anything that I provide to them. Sounds fantastic. Um, you have been sequestered in Manhattan more or less since uh, the beginning of the year. And I'm curious uh, to know how that's impacted your art making process and, and also your consciousness, not only as an artist, but as a spiritual being. Well, again, thanks to the relationships I had in China, I was forewarned of the impact that the coronavirus would have uh, as early as as January of this year. Um, Shortly thereafter, I decided that quarantine was the best solution for me uh, based on age and vulnerability. There was very little information here, but I was being channeled with lots of information from uh, Asia. Um, At first, it was one of those, uh, oh my, I can hardly wait to roll up my shirt sleeves and dig into all of the projects, all of the things that were kind of set to the side by just a busy life and tons of travel. Uh, The reality hit maybe March or April, that this was going to go on for a long time and that I definitely had to reassess who I was, what I was doing, why I was doing it, what role it would play in my ability to continue to develop and evolve and reach an understanding that I was, was a, a bit of a turning point for me. I kind of changed directions from being interested in what I was making and being more interested in how the making originated from the mind, from the mind, from the soul, from the spirit. Where was this this impetus coming from? Because I certainly had used up all of my normal resources of interaction with other people and travel and museums and galleries, and uh, it was a wake-up call. I bet. Um. So tell us what happened. (laughs) Well, I can say it's happening. It's still ongoing. Um, It started with being willing and available to interact with other artists. I had been flirting with this. Most of the time, my busy schedule and the way I live my life has always been pretty much as a loner. Uh, traveling a great deal. I have communities of of friends and like-minded people everywhere, but not necessarily out my front door. So I 
started to reconnect with the resources that were available in New York, interact with a lot more people. And of course, some of the meetings that we had begun before COVID once a month, which were very, very enjoyable and interesting, but not impactful, morphed into a weekly Zoom meeting. And I got to the point where it was killing me. It was absolutely way too much digital interference in my day-to-day. took a while to recondition my mindset and to be able to focus during the Zoom meetings and find my role. What was, I, what was my role going to be since, uh, I mean, the first time I saw somebody after being quarantined for months, first time I saw somebody in, in front of me talking, a neighbor over the back fence, I was totally distracted because she had arms and legs. I'd only seen heads and heads and heads and heads. I actually did a series based on um, a a moment when I was having a bowl of soup late at night by myself. I think it was the 300th or 400th meal I'd eaten alone. And one of the bones in the soup looked up at me and I said, hello. (laughs) And that led to creating a complete series of characters that are my Zoomers. They all have personalities, just like the people that I've met on Zoom, uh, that, that whole unique community, and they're hoot. They're an absolute hoot. Everybody loves them. I look at them and I say, well, this is, you know, maybe I am going crazy. I don't know. <laughs> 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 it's like, I never did anything like that before, so that's a new one for me. Uh, I've also done some collaborative work, which has been an interesting, uh, a completely different experience, working with other artists on a specific piece. And how has it um, impacted your interior life to be isolated in this kind of a way? Well, uh, you know, every day is a day to count blessings, and every day is a day to learn something new and to offer, as has always been my custom, I usually would start my day by offering an hour of myself to anybody who needed it. After that, I would retreat to do what I needed. So at this point, I would say I've become much more conscious of every gesture, much more integrous in my day-to-day. It's as if there is no time to waste anymore. It has to be real. It has to be valuable. It has to, you know, move that that ball upfield a little bit. Uh, in terms of reclaiming what is our society and what are our beliefs are and how we will be present for the years to come in spite of, you know, what we're going through on a daily basis. It's not easy. It is definitely a rigorous, conscious effort to maintain that balance. I think that's very true. I notice that myself. I have... um less time for something that I don't feel is essential. And um, I really focus very hard on whatever it is I'm doing in the moment. Yes. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And that's not bad. No, it's actually these are very positive, Uh very positive things. I I can see the people around me who don't have that self-reliance and they're floundering or they're hysterical or they're depressed or they're stopped in their tracks. And I don't feel any of that. 
I feel very willful as much as I've always been, but now I can look at it and say, wow, there is my will saying you are going to make this happen in your life. You are going to move forward in this direction. And that to me uh, is, is very reassuring. Yeah, I think um, using our will right now is critical even ultimately to our survival because it's easy to fall apart when the pressures are great. I, sometimes I look at that and think it's a luxury. Like, who has the luxury of giving away their energy to falling apart? <laughs> you know, maybe it's, it's not empathetic. And maybe not everybody has the same basic tools to keep them going. But, I, you know, I, like I decided that I would, I knew I was going to be making food for myself, that it would be over and over and over again, and I decided I wouldn't make anything the same twice. So that's been a good exercise, like how to do something that would be so easy to fall into the habit, you know, throw that egg in the pan. No, it's got to be a different egg, a different way for all the right reasons. And so that kind of being present is feeding all the other activities as well. Well, in terms of your own personal art making, um, do you feel this time in quarantine has allowed you to progress to a higher level specifically um, in 2020? I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. I don't know what, you know, it's, it's a moment of pause. It's a moment of uh, reassessment, uh, deciding what is essential, and a great desire to be experimental. The, there's no reason for me at this stage, and I am late career, no reason at this stage to repeat anything I've already done and to limit myself by something comfortable. On the contrary, um, we're on the edge. I'm on the edge. Let me keep going to the edge of the edge if I can. I'm not sure what it's going to look like. I'm not sure where it's going to be. But I've come to a kind of a, um, a big question mark where... And, and this is, I think, part of the experience of living in other cultures, speaking other languages, the source of which is a completely different logos. You think of things from a different cultural heritage. And I realize that we don't have all the answers here. Far, far from it. We commoditize everything. I don't want to be a commodity of anything. Um, for me, the only product I'm concerned with is myself. What is the product that I make by doing this? And so I want to be very careful about where I put my time and my attention. Right now I'm gathering a lot of good material just from reading, uh, I would say, deep reading, and then looking at some of the more poetic type of input to see how words are used. Um, I think that the artist in the United States has, taken the responsibility for speaking for the country. It used to be, you know, nobody's education permitted them to express themselves clearly, and so we have a lot of lawyers in this country. Lawyers interact uh, on many, many, many levels far beyond in other 
societies. I think the artist now is taking on a role in the in the social conversation that is not exactly what they were supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be a little deeper than that. It's not supposed to be, you know, a newscast when you make a piece of art just because it was COVID and today is what you heard in the news. And I'm seeing a lot of that around me, a lot of knee-jerk responses. Oh, that's interesting. So you feel as a result of the virus that some art is becoming more superficial? Um, yes, that would be, well, let's say, I don't want to use the word superficial because it's a language and people who are in kindergarten need to learn language and people who are postgraduate also master language in a, at a different level. So yes, you're speaking. Who are you speaking to through your art? Who is listening? Who is hearing? If this is a new language that's being invented or created for the moment, then who are we talking to? You know, putting putting billboards up everywhere that um, have slogans on them, that's propaganda. That's not art necessarily. Well, but the slogans started with Barbara Kruger in the 1980s, you know, that, that type of message or Jenny Holzer you know, that type of thing has been going on. Do you feel that there's a, a more of a tricky um, quality to the art um, because of the virus? That people are more, more panicked, more disturbed? Um, well, I don't think the more anxiety. They're not making comfortable art today. They're not making anything reassuring that would say, calm down, it'll all be fine. Not at all. That's why I say they're almost like a, the visual journalists. And not all artists, but the ones that we see in the foreground, the ones that you pick up a magazine and read about, they're, they're shouting. They're shouting about the virus? They're shouting about the social situation which includes largely the virus. You know, we have a perfect storm. Well, uh, you know, Picasso with Guernica was shouting about war. Um, I, I, you know, I, as a form of protest, um, I, I think that I, uh, for me personally, something has been going on in the art world since the 1980s when materialism became such an important part of art making and the marketing and the selling of art. And now the, the prices in the art market are just absolutely absurd. Um, but... So it's it's all completely and totally out of whack. Um, <laughs> yes, right. It's it, you know it's the micro and the macro. There's no difference today in the art market than there is in um, in in business. You are a billionaire and you represent two percent of uh, the wealth of the country. Um, I'm sorry, you're the two percent that represents eighty or ninety percent now of the wealth of the country. 
and the rest are, are relegated to a whole different diet than that. And it's the same thing in the art world. There's no way that you could become an art student and aspire to be Jeff Koons. How do you get that? I mean, that's the 2%, and yet everybody's lusting to be recognized at that level. You can't start a business today without a million dollars. A small startup requires a million dollars. As an artist, you requires backing and and a staff and people pushing for you and uh, you know you have to engage a lot of people to make your way to the top and very few people get there but many 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 people think that they're on their way well hold that thought we're going to take our first commercial break we'll be right back thank you welcome back to the show we're here with Leah Poehler talking about uh, uh, art in the time of the coronavirus. Um, I think that um, the points that you're making are, are very interesting, but um, kind of take away from what I've always thought of um, as the meaning of art, which is a, a, a way to access higher realms of thought and spirituality. And it would seem that in the time of the virus, when, when people are sequestered and spending much more time alone, the potential has been given to everybody to once of all the you know, anxiety has kind of settled down to explore inner dimensions within themselves. And of course, the artist is the prime candidate for someone someone in the arts is the prime candidate to be able to do that yes I, for me art the art that i'm interested in is the art of dreams the art of imagination the art of the, the aesthetics and poetry and beauty and the and the the unexplored it's not the morning news spread out on, on a canvas. I'm looking to, to discover in art what I don't know, not what's already plastered around me. So yes, I do think that this period of time, once, once it's clear that we have no exit strategy, but this is where we are, then yes, going deeper inside oneself, um, finding the the unexplored is where it has to happen next for art to emerge and save most of us. And in terms of the artists that you're interacting with, um, in general, how would you say they're dealing with this isolation? Um, the, I think the primary difference is whether they are in a partnership or they're alone. That seems to make a huge difference in how they're confronting the situation. Uh, for some, the aloneness, the loneliness is getting really hard to handle. Uh, for others, they have that other person in their day-to-day um, coming and going and bringing something to the scene. It's much more tolerable. Um, for many of the artists, not including myself, I have the advantage of having a lot of space 
and having a studio in my home, I didn't lose the ability to make use of my studio. Those artists who lost their studio access because of COVID uh, are suffering in a different way, and they're also expressing using different materials. So the, the oh, that's interesting. That come from it. I'm sorry. I, that's interesting that they're turning to different materials. Yeah, I, I began by literally emptying every cabinet and drawer in my studio and said, what can I make with what's here? Because it's obvious that I'm not going to be able to replenish it all that easily. There are odd objects, you know, that I collected over time that make their way into the art. And... Um Using new materials is also adding something or allowing you to access some new dimension within your consciousness that you have not experienced prior to the virus? Um, Actually, I thank the fact that I was already on that path before the virus. I think that's what's been my rudder through this all. I don't know what my state of mind would be if I didn't have that quest already in place. And this is a chance to examine it with far less interruption, uh, far less dis- uh, disturbance. Uh, you know, I used to travel every month. I was somewhere, and probably six out of 12 months I was in another country. And that's very stimulating and very exciting and very rich and very rewarding, but now I'm relying on my past experiences of that because I can't renew it. And so it's coming from a place where all of those experiences have been processed and digested and converted. And so I'm now working with the, let's say, the, the result of it rather than the moment of it. I would think all that traveling could be very distracting, though, in terms of um, the creative process. Uh, You know, when I was in art school and had to work and raise three children, I learned how to use all of my mind to make art, even though I wasn't where I could put it down and and create it. You know, sculpture requires a lot of material, a lot of space, and it's a completely different gesture than drawing a couple lines on a paper to remember something. It takes, you know, it takes a whole other physical participation. And in the absence of that kind of quality time for myself, I learned to do it in my head. I could draw in my head. I didn't need a, a, a pad and a paper to do it. And so then when I would see my subject again, I already had in my head that drawing. So I've been doing that for a long time. And the travel has been fabulous. I would never, I would never say that it, it got in the way ever. It's, it's almost like becoming um, a tighter spring. You know, you, you wind up and wind up and wind up, and then, wow, you get in the studio, it all comes out, and it's processed. Yeah, I could see that it could work that way, but in general, I think artists are such interior creatures, um, uh, you know, and have the ability to be by themselves for long, long stretches of time. Uh, for sure, um, as part of their creative process. But everybody's different. <laughs> yes, yes, they certainly are. They certainly are. 
I, I think um, sometimes back uh, on the book, Love in the Time of Cholera by Gabriela uh-huh. Garcia Marquez. Do you remember that? And I think, well, maybe... I was actually referring to that, in, in, you know, <laughs> art in the time of the coronavirus. Yes, that's yes, exactly yeah. what I had in mind just a few Sure. If uh, we were talking about that in one of my groups, like what did the art look like before the outbreak of World War II, and then what happened to it during World War II, and then what were the movements that arose as the aftermath of World War II? And I think we're going to see things like that from COVID, and especially since it is so global and it's it's so mysterious, you just don't know where the enemy is on this round. You don't have a frontier and a border. You have it anywhere at any time with anyone. So it has a completely different feel to it than, than some of those historic events. Well, from a spiritual perspective, that's an extraordinary thing to understand that we are all experiencing this same thing at this moment in time and space. Um, the details are different case to case, but everyone on the planet is is dealing with the issues of the COVID virus right now. Yeah, I'll I'll give you an example close to me. It's a strange one. Um, But again, it kind of pulls things together. Uh, A member of the family in Europe uh, was honking their horn at somebody who was taking a long time doing what they were doing. And at the next streetlight, the person arrived at the car, the driver put down the window, and the guy on the motorcycle who was obstructing the traffic literally punched him out. And it came as a huge surprise, like, oh, my God, oh, my God. Well, what we saw afterwards was the deep damage and the pain that that produced, the insecurities that arose to the surface, and the questions like, how could you do that? Why would you do that? Where did that violence come from? And then you say, okay, so now you have a, a chance close up and in your own environment to look at the trauma. What You would think you get over something like that, and you say, oh, you know, somebody was just crazy and did it. No, it becomes a trauma. So we're all in a, in a moment of trauma, and it's going to impact us for a long time to come, I suspect. I don't know what it's going to do to the children, but it's certainly doing something to the people in my environment. Well, as a New Yorker, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about the situation with um, our cultural institutions, how attendance is virtually non-existent now, and smaller institutions are going to be closing, um, eliminating a whole range of uh, opportunities for exposure to specific works of art and areas of art in all fields, music, theater, fine art, you name it, performance art. Um, How do you feel that is impacting the artist uh, in general? Uh, it's like denying oxygen. <laughs> we, mm-hmm. we all we all thrive on the cultural richness that a city like New York provides, and it's been uh, it's been shut off. 
Uh, I feel for the institutions because this is a big blow and they're going to suffer and we'll see it in terms of some of the ambition and the programs and what they do with the art that they have. There will be a kind of uh, repositioning of, uh, you could see it with like the Gustin exhibit that was postponed. The institutions feel like they're under siege. Some of them have made an about face and are trying to uh, redress the wrongs of you know, 40 years of, of behavior. Um, the, the pendulum is swinging. What is it doing? I think that, and this is my own personal nature, if um, the good comes with the bad, then some of the good is that this is a city that is filled with artists who now have space to retake the city culturally and speak from the experience that is relevant to the geography of their presence here. And that could be very interesting. You know, the number of foreigners has dried up. The exhibitions of foreign artists has dried up. Access to the museums has dried up. So we're all looking for initiatives. Uh, I participated in one a couple of weeks ago where we put together a projection of artwork and introduced the artists on, by showing it on a wall in Harlem uh, after dark with hundreds of people passing by, stopping, and partaking. So we enlarged the audience, we opened up a conversation, we showed work that would never have been seen, and everybody was energized by it, because we're all hungry for that here. So there will that be more and great. more initiatives of that nature, I'm sure. That sounds great. Yeah. We're yeah. going to take our second commercial break now, and we'll be right back. Thank you. Welcome back to the show. Leah, do you feel that your um, intuitive abilities have grown since the beginning of the year when the virus hit? It depends on what time of day you catch me. <laughs> and sometimes <laughs> I feel like Superwoman. Wow, I can handle this. Well, let me, let me loose. I can go for it. I've got a thousand ideas. I just need to do this or that. And then there are other moments when I say, oh, I don't know what I should be doing now. Where should my attention go? What, what am I hearing from inside of me? Um, I think I shared with you before that I'm very interested in, in the origins of creativity. I think of it as a natural resource that has been um, appreciated to a degree, maybe not shared globally um, to its real level of possibility. Uh, you think of you know, petroleum's in the ground to refine it and do something with it and then put it in a car so everybody's driving. The world shares it. I'm not sure that's true about uh, the higher pursuits of our culture, that it's shared that democratically with people. But I'm more interested in why we're creative. I don't think of animals as so creative as humans. So why are we so creative? Where does that come from? How do you, how do you inculcate that in a child and grow it rather than, than snuff it out? Why would people be afraid of, of creativity? So I think we're probably on uh, uh, the verge of an enormous burst of creativity. Speaking for myself, my art education has, has been um, the most important thing in my life along with my spirituality. But um, being an artist 
teaches you to problem solve and think outside of the box in ways that uh, the average person does not entertain, you know, f almost at all, really, in the same kind of way. An artist is called to create from nothing on a daily basis if they're making their work. And um, it's extraordinary how that process can expand one's capabilities on, on all levels. Um, it's just a huge gift and one that the, uh, the cuts in our art education for young people will impact future generations for you know centuries to come unless we turn, change course and reintegrate it into our school systems. Well, yes, because you can speak of um, literary illiteracy, but few people speak about cultural illiteracy and this uh, elimination of all of the creative programs, whether it's theater, dance, music, art, uh, starting with the young people and all through their studies in junior high and high school, is pathetic. In fact, I heard something the other day about artificial intelligence will put so many people on the sidelines from what we consider to be a day's work that the suggestion was, well, let's make them artists. <laughs> that would be a very interesting... At what point do you start grooming that artistic ability? Not when you're 45, I don't suppose. You should start when they're younger. But one thing that I... I I'm so thankful for in terms of the um, learning provided by becoming a sculptor. I understand that it takes place in time. It takes place in dimensions. It takes place in energy. It takes place in space. And it takes place in emotions. And if I'm working on a, an object and I turn it, I have to be aware of what the other side, I can't see, but what it relates to. And so it has been the most extraordinary problem-solving exercise that has grounded me for almost every other activity I do. I can kind of figure out what it is about life now because of that over and over, exercising all of those elements simultaneously. And if it's only inside of me, it's not there. You know, it doesn't serve any purpose. So manifesting it and then making it accessible to other people is the gift. That's where the payback comes in. If you can share that with someone else and they can have some takeaway from it, then the art has fulfilled its role in the conversation. And it is a cultural conversation. It, it's the higher conversation. And that's true for all of the art forms because uh, character in a play or, or a novel uh, feed the knowledge and learning of the reader uh, in psychological and uh, countless other ways uh, as, you're ex as you're experiencing the work of art that you're engaged in. Yeah, you know, so I've been, I love theater, and sometimes leaving the 
a play, I would say to myself, well, it was good, and they you know, really tried hard, but there was no room for me in the play. They left no space for the spectator. So for me right now, I'm fascinated by not just what the object of the beholder is, but that it be beheld, and the person who is creating it is holding it, beholding it, at every step along the way until it's completed. And does that make sense? That yeah. there's a person involved that we don't talk about. When we talk about art, we say, oh, this painting, and then the reaction to the painting. But what about the person who made that painting? They're in the middle of that beholding over and over and over again. I behold what I'm doing. I have to step in it and step out of it and keep looking at it and seeing it over and over and over again to understand what it is. So it's a fact, it's, to me, I would never trade this life for any other. You know, it's kept me challenged and, and in, in appreciation and humility and awe day after day. I've never done anything that has met the match of what it is like to be a creative person trying to figure out these man-made problems they don't exist until I create the problem and then I look for the solution and then I have to figure out, well, did I find it or not? Right. That's true. And ultimately for, for the artist, again, regardless of field, um, the final act is the sharing of the work. You, you're essentially alone. I mean, there are collaborative works, but... If you're a writer or a musician, you're writing alone. If you're working in your studio, you're more or less working alone uh, for most artists. And then the sharing, the viewing, the partaking is the last stage and the most important. And that's where we, as a member of humanity, reach out to each other and engage, communicate and engage. You know, somebody came into my space and looked at my portraits because I've done a lot of work over the years in portraits. And I might say that I did a series, I'm still doing a series of warrior women before anybody ever had that as a subject on on their plate. And the person said to me, oh, you live alone? I said, yes. They said, well, your house is filled with people. <laughs> and I thought, it's true. I'm never alone. I, when I see the portraits that I've done and the time I've spent interacting with my subjects, they're still present. I never feel lonely. I know that there's a, a degree of saying, well, there's nobody else moving in the space with me, but there's a presence. So it's never a loneliness. I'm sure that's true, and I'm sure... I'm not, I don't know what year your house was built, but I'm sure there are other um, <laughs> entities and so forth there with right. you as well. Yes, yeah, you're right on that, yeah, 1895, filled with yeah. those, right? <laughs> so, um, well, um, tell us about where you're at at this very moment and what you see happening for you in the next six months to a year. Oh, that's, uh, that is the best question of all the questions. I wake up every morning and I'm trying to get my arms wrapped around it. Um, I feel a need at this point to change my geographic locale only so that I can intercept all of the messages coming at me 
from everywhere on the planet from a different angle. I'm very familiar now with this space. I've been still in the space. I will continue to be still for months to come, but then I'm going to need to geographically reposition myself. And I do believe that energy comes from different directions, and so that will be a key factor for me. Um, finding my public, finding my audience again, reviving the uh, interest in the work that has, unfortunately, it, it, it fell asleep because everybody has other priorities. And as you say, the, the galleries and the institutions have cut back. So I'm looking for that, that new audience. Um, I need to test it a little bit, and that's going to be stretching my wings. Um, and I have some important work that's still yet to be done that has been in my mind that I think will coalesce and will allow me to explore new materials and uh, new subject matter. That sounds promising. Well, you know, it, it, I have one basic flaw in my behavior. Don't bore me. Don't bore myself, <laughs> right? I don't right. need... Yeah, I don't need a minute of my life to be bored by my life. And so I will constantly activate whatever there is going on around me not to be bored. And that's a, that's a good engine. It, it keeps me moving. Communally, are there any um, specific things that you're working on with the other artists you're involved with that you feel will be beneficial as we move into our post-virus phase? Uh, hopefully, yes. And, and that, is, um, th that falls into more than one area. I'm actually doing some collaborative pieces, which I've never done before. It's very interesting. I'm learning a tremendous amount from people who use other materials, who have other aesthetics. I'm working on a piece right now with someone who's a minimalist. I'm more Baroque in everything, and I'm learning what I need to hold back from what I'm doing, and she's learning where she can add to what she's doing. So it's a really interesting repartee, uh, four hands um, playing one piece of music, fascinating. In some of the art groups, um, I've, been very help I've been very helpful to maintain a discourse that is about the art, about the process of the art, the emotions that come with the art, the, the deeper yearnings of the artist, the quest, the search. Keeping that conversation alive is really important because we in America are known for being pragmatic and having goals and, and you know, the, the deadlines and wanting something to be produced and I've been able to rein back this group from being um, didactic and, and administrative and going back deeper into the conversation of the art, which is what I enjoyed when I was living in Europe, much more so than here. And that's turning into something quite beautiful. I mean, you can actually see the respect and the appreciation and the love growing in front of your eyes. It's amazing. Do you feel that that was the direct result from the virus? Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you feel that um, the, the artists that you're communicating with have perhaps even developed a, additional compassion or sensitivity through all that we've all been through uh, since the beginning of the year? Um, 
yes, and, and it's come about through what I call simple exercises, one being to listen, another being to look. So if you can be still with somebody else's work and look at it for an hour without saying anything, what will you say at the end of the hour? Certainly something much more significant than, oh, I just love it, or the the blue is beautiful. No, we're going really, really deep into understanding each other's work and appreciating it at a very different level. It's a new experience and something that the artists are really taking to beautifully. Um, We've gotten to the point where we care about each other's art, which is very interesting as well. So there's no competition. Yeah, there's no competition. It's really, this is who we are. Can we talk about who we are in a way that isn't necessarily uh, a conversation available when you're talking with just your friends? They haven't been that path, you know? Right, right. That's, that's very true. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you're all in this together at the same time. I, I think there's such a... Uh, strength and camaraderie that grows out of having to deal each day with a shared challenge Um, and that empathy in that process can open up all kinds of new information and new sources of energy and the, and and connecting within the connect collective, you know, on the obvious levels, but also on the in, invisible levels as well. I, yeah, you're absolutely spot on because what's beginning to show up is synergy at all levels. Uh-huh. That is not mm-hmm. you can't be synergistic with yourself. You know, that doesn't happen. You need another element to synergize with. And by, I mean, this is, this is really hard stuff. You know, human beings are the toughest material out there. You have to turn them in lots of different directions uh, to be able to make something comprehensible about a group of people. Not easy, not easy. Well, but, especially New Yorkers. <laughs> <laughs> Having yeah. lived there myself for 18 years, I know it well. Uh, well, again, you know, a lot of that is, it's, there's a wonderful uh, psychological, um, let's say, what you need to know is you can't tell somebody something unless you have their attention. So first, how do you get their attention? And then after you get their attention, how do you express what you're saying? Where is it coming from? And we have a big thing in the United States. We confuse uh, a criticism with observation. And people don't take well to what they think of as criticism. If you're criticizing something, it's a bad term. If you're observing and commenting on it and you're describing the differences of one thing to another and helping that person see what they're not seeing, that's not criticism. That's support, right? So at first, everybody gets a little bit bent out of shape. They think they're being criticized. But in fact, it's like opening door after door after door into their, into their own rooms. And that's, it's showing up as like really, really impactful, really wonderful. 
In recent decades, though, we have become a very different culture with the Internet and criticism and negative commenting has become the easiest thing in in the world to do to one another if you choose to go that route. I mean, I'm 64 years old. When I was in art school, sitting down for a crit with each other and your professor about each other's work was you know, totally standard, and um, we spent hours and hours doing it uh, on a regular basis and learning from each other in a a constructive way. Uh, I'm sure there were people who felt offended because at times it can be harsh, but it's a very different way of being uh, from what goes on since the Internet has become so pervasive. Yeah, and so uh, I'll give you an example of two exercises that we um, engaged in in one of the groups. The first exercise was for each artist to pick out one piece of their work that they hated, that they appreciated least of all, that they felt wasn't successful, that had things they didn't like about it, and share it with the group. So it's like taking your ugliest child and putting them in the beauty contest. People don't usually want to do that, right? But suddenly we got a chance to hear the redeeming features that were perhaps obscured because somebody else's regard of the work was coming from a very different place. So then you're going to make a selection of work for an exhibition and you might be excluding many things that other people would be greatly interested in that you don't see the interest in. So it was a great way to be empathetic about the work and to forgive ourselves for what we thought was our ugly child and learned as much from exploring that as if we showed our best work and had people say, oh, bravo, that's great. The other thing we did was we, we picked somebody else's work in the group and we wrote about it. And suddenly when we shared all of that written information, the the writing wasn't as easy as the conversation and people were much more self-conscious about the words that they chose. And we ended up with pure poetry. We ended up with music. It was wonderful to hear the artist speaking from an artistic voice about somebody else's art. And again, really, really rewarding. And the artists were so excited by taking back the words for themselves about the art that they want to keep doing this. So I know it was a very valuable exercise. Now, that's great. Well, I remember with my, um, under, one of my undergraduate professors in painting, um, the, he, he would say to me that the piece that I really you know, did not like my my ugly child Mm -hmm. uh, was the direction that the work was headed in. And I just wasn't up to that point yet. So I was rejecting it. And in many cases, he was right. Not all, but most, most of the time that was, um, that was a very observant uh, comment. Yeah, and that's, that's what helps you move forward. You know, if somebody asks me, when is a piece finished? The answer is when I can leave it to take, to use it as a bridge to the next piece. It's done when I know I need to move on to the next piece. Right. Absolutely. 
So in terms of your own spiritual life um, over the course of this year, how has Leah changed? She's gotten older. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, hopefully a little wiser. I don't know. Um, a little bit more innocent, which is a... a How so? Yeah, I was just going to say it's an interesting place to go back to. Um, when you're, when you're um, performing at a, at a brisk speed and you're moving along in life and things are falling into place and one opportunity opens the door to another there is a, a element of being in 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 um what do you call it well you're coasting in some ways you're moving forward on your own momentum having to stop and then reconstruct and rebuild my very beliefs from beginning to end has allowed me to look back at where innocence took a detour and where cynicism kind of took over. And so I could say now I'm more hopeful than ever. And one of the reasons that might be possible is because everybody's experiencing that. Everybody has to stop and face themselves in new ways. And maybe that will be a very wonderful step in the right direction for humanity. I can hope so. So do you feel um, the word... innocence could be possibly interchanged with authentic, authentic, authenticity? No, 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 I don't see them as having the same space in me. You know, you can't, you can't create sculpture as a lie. Oh, I think I disagree with that completely. I think you can. (laughs) I think there's a a lot of it being exhibited all over the world right now that um, um, (laughs) is is um, very um, self-conscious and precious. And um, but that's you know that's not art. Vapid. Yeah. Well, it it depends on. I guess that depends on. Yeah. You know the individual definition of the word. Exactly. Exactly. And being, you know, this is when when you and I collaborated on the magazine on on whether truth and whether real and reality were the same things. They're not. They're not. And so authenticity in art. That's what makes it art when it's not authentic. It's not art anymore. It's objects. It's things. It's colors. It's spaces. But it's it's not. It it has to have that authentic, original wonderment in, in it. And it can't it can't be done self consciously. If you're manufacturing it, well, then you better make pocketbooks. You'd be much richer at the end of the day. So overall, would you say that the virus has contributed? to your artistic well-being? Again, ask me at different times of the day, I'll probably come back with the A to Z answer. Sometimes it leaves me in in panic. Like, when is this going to end? What will we be like afterwards? I know a lot of it is based on the upcoming elections as well. So I'm not... I, I would say that COVID as a disease is one thing. COVID as a weaponized social 
um, what do you call that? I don't know. An opportunistic weaponization of a disease is horrific. I'm sensitive to the difference between the two. Yeah, there's no question that we're all being manipulated in numerous ways as a result of the virus. Yeah, so I can be, to answer you, I can be angry, I can be defensive, I can be short-tempered, I can be impatient, and I can be charitable, and I can be hopeful. It's the full gamut. The, The trick is, can I see myself being those things? Can I see when it's an actual original feeling or when it's been uh, produced by something outside of me? I don't Mm -hmm. like it when somebody manipulates. I really don't. Yeah, no one does. Yeah, I think I'm... uh, Whether they're consciously aware of it, you know, whether you can consciously identify it or not is another thing, but somewhere inside of you, you know, we all know when we're being manipulated. Yeah, I don't think I've ever bought anything because of advertising. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just resistant to it. That's not where, where I decide from. Uh, so gathering the information, it's the same thing as when I do one of my portraits. I spend time understanding what's in front of me and where it comes from and how to express it, how to, how to take it in and give it back out without doing damage to myself. So, yeah, COVID Mm -hmm. is heavy duty. It's heavy duty, but it's far, far worse than it should have been. Uh, It's funny because historically, I think the universe has let us off easy. I really do. I mean, it's tragic how many people have been lost. But um, I also feel that historically, looking at plagues and other things that have happened throughout the globe, um, you know, we are receiving a, a relatively gentle wake-up call, oh, in my I, opinion. Oh, I, I couldn't agree with you more that this is the wake-up call. If we go to sleep after this, too bad for us, right? Yeah. 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 They, there's yeah. way, way bigger dangers that are right around the corner. And if if you know, I think sometimes Mother Earth said, well, you know, I, I sent you global warming and you, didn't, and you didn't act. And then I sent you fires and you didn't act. And I sent you tornadoes and hurricanes. And I've sent you all of these things so that you could wake up and you didn't. Well, now this one can come so close to nibbling at your own toes, you're going to wake up. And if you don't, well, there's nothing we can do about you. You're, you're lost. Right. Person. Yeah. Right. So the the big question is where would where would a safe haven be from that, if that moment arises? I don't know. I have no idea. We have to feel safe within our own skin. We um, have to find that place of safety. Um, and you know, if you believe in consciousness as I do, then you are safe. I think that when you stop holding on to things and you give the energy its rightful due, it will carry you. Yeah, I think the energy does does carry us as mm-hmm. long as we're working with it, definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
if you deny that it's there and you're in opposition to it, then it, the fight is a bad one. It's one you'll lose. And I think that's true of consciousness. If you can't admit that consciousness is there, you can't possibly go towards it. Well, you're not connected to yourself. If you can't, yeah, if you can't accept that consciousness is there, then you're leading an unconscious life. So you, you are, in fact, unconscious. But isn't um, that one of the ills of our society today? Oh, for, for sure. Right. Uh, and it's by design. You know, I think people have been deliberately dumbed down in so many ways. But we have the ability to claim our consciousness and our autonomy and um, open up ourselves. I mean, that's, that's the, the goal for each and every one of us. That's why we're born to have this experience and to advance. Well, I, I suspect that the universe is looking for balance and in order for that to be in play, you, you're stretching the extremes. And on the one hand, you have the completely unconscious and then you have the one seeking consciousness on the other hand. And this is the struggle, stretching those boundaries further and further. I mean, we have a chance through spirituality, we have a chance for awakening to something much larger than was, maybe it was hinted at in the past, but now it's in our lives, it's a possibility in our lives. There's words to describe it, there's ways to access it, and, and the path is the part that, that you, need to, you need to get on that path. If nobody tells you that it's there and you can't see it, and there's no guides to go on it, then it's really hard to invent it for yourself. And we have a ton of people that are literally not conscious to the tragedy yeah. of humanity. Yeah, here we are. Um, yeah. yeah. Here we are. Well, Leah, we will have some um, images of your sculpture and your bio um, posted with your interview. Thank you so much. Do you have any closing words uh, for someone interested in exploring a creative life? Don't hesitate. <laughs> yes. Don't hesitate. It, it's not scary at all. It's very inviting. And what I tell young artists when I'm asked to speak to groups of aspiring students or beginning artists or when I was in the gallery, this was what I always said. This is the one activity that will show you where freedom lies. You are free to express yourself. Nobody's waiting for it. There is no judge and jury. And don't expect that people are going to throw money at you for it. But it is the highest service to yourself to seek your freedom through creativity. And that's where you find it. Very well said. Thank you. My pleasure. And your website is? www. 
Leah, L-E-A-H, Poller, P-O-L-L-E-R.com. And on Wonderful. Instagram. Wonderful. So people can go and see your sure. work in depth on your website. Right. right. And Instagram is Leah Poller Artist. Terrific. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Leah, for joining us. And um, I also want to add that we are about to publish our part two issue of Consciousness and Contact uh, by New Observations Magazine. And Leah has an article on her sculpture included in that issue. It's number 136. Thank you Thank again, you so Mia. much. You made my day, see? <laughs> if anybody asks how today was, I'm going to say unique, <laughs> impressive, awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much, Leah, for <laughs> yeah, me too. Bye-bye. You too. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.